everybody, welcome to Latter-day Struggles, your podcast that helps you tackle all things complexity in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, our shared faith tradition. So tonight, I am happy to report I have my partner in crime here, and he happens to be my husband also. Hi, Nathan. Hello, beautiful. Hey, how are you? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? Good. We're glad to be here with you guys tonight. This is a take two. We recorded this yesterday. And it, the sound quality was so terrible that, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly liberal about, you know, dropping content if it's high quality, but it even, um, it surpassed even my minimum standards of what I didn't want to subject you guys to. <laughs> so here we are once again, and I think we have a fun conversation in store for you. And so we wanted to talk about, I have been reading, I know I preface a lot of these podcasts with that. So, ooh, excuse me, for those of you interested, in learning more about this particular topic, I'm reading a book called The Art of Insubordination by a man by the name of Todd B. Cashton. And not to state the obvious, but I am trying to learn how to dissent in ways that are effective and persuasive. And I stand before you learning, um, you know, just a, a learner, somebody who is trying to do this well. I see it done well. Um, in in many places i also see it done not very well in other places and for me this is an important topic to tackle because this topic is deeply personal to me and it matters to me and so therefore if i'm going to speak about the struggles that i'm having and if i'm speaking um, to you and on behalf of others who are like me who are trying to navigate the complexities of our faith tradition while um, holding on to that which we have felt and feel is blessing us, we've got to speak in a way that is kind and generous, but firm and direct and persuasive and ultimately effective. Sometimes we may be right about something, but if we say something in a way that is unkind or harsh or attacking, it doesn't matter how right we are, we're not going to be persuasive or effective. Anything you want to add to that, Nathan, as I open up on a little bit of a soapbox? <laughs> <laughs> no. I wholeheartedly agree. It's it's not what you say, it's the way you say it. Ah, back to what he's going to have on his gravestone someday, hopefully That's in a right. very long time. <laughs> All right, so today in this book, I have narrowed down one small topic that Nathan and I are going to break down. I'm going to read this to you, and then we're going to really dissect it together. This is what the author says. Psychologists have identified five factors that increase the odds of taking action in social situations. Okay, so since you're kind of, I'm, I'm taking this from sort of the middle of a paragraph, let me go ahead and just reword that for simplicity's sake. Why is it that some of us make the choice to be reformers, to speak up and speak out and to sort of go against the tribe and the crowd? Okay, this is what they, he has discovered through his research. And let's go ahead and just break these down one at a time. Okay, and this is actually a, a great topic for us to talk about because this has actually in some ways been our own process. Mm. Okay, so if we, what needs to happen or the process whereby we decide to speak up? Component number one is we begin to pay closer attention to the institution and begin to notice that there is a problem. Why don't you just take that for a second, Nathan, and talk about our process of when we and how we started to pay closer attention and notice that all is not well in Zion. 
Yeah. So, I mean, for a very long time, I, I was absolutely a 100% Kool-Aid drinking Orthodox Mormon who believed that, uh, you know, no leader ever made a mistake and that the church was <laughs> always making the right choices and always on the right course. Um, and I think for me, there were a few things that, that began to open my eyes to, to a problems, to, to multiple problems. Uh, one is I began to look a little bit for myself into the history behind blacks and the priesthood, black men in the priesthood and black men and women in, in, in uh, temple blessings. And um, just the things that I read, the things that I learned, the things that good trusted friends shared with me uh, on their own journeys, I had no choice but to come to the conclusion that I thought it was a gigantic mistake. It was very disheartening. I remember when you were going through that process, maybe about three years ago. Perhaps. Yeah. Mm. But, um, you know, when I started learning things about, you know, the, the Mormons really did own slaves in Utah. In fact, they tried to become a slave state and, and, and Brigham Young owned slaves and he accepted slaves as tithing and, and put him in his, in his own house. And, and just all these things that just kept coming up and, and, and how there was never really a revelation around uh, the priesthood band. And several of the members of the Twelve opposed Brigham when he tried to introduce it. And he sent them off on missions to get them out of the house. And, and just kind of over and over again, I, I got to the point where I'm like, I, I can't, I can't twist this into a truth that is supportable. Right. <laughs> it, it, it's a joke. And Brigham was a racist. And, I, and you know, that doesn't mean I don't think he was a prophet, but he clearly was a racist. And he had a lot of racist tendencies and he did a lot of racist things. And so um, that sort of cracked the dam for me. Yeah. Uh, and, and so we started looking into other things, how we treat the LGBTQs. You know, I, I was a staunch supporter of the campaign for Prop 8 in California. I donated money to it. I was doing all the things the church asked us to do with the letters they read over the pulpit. And, and then, you know, one day I, we just kind of looked at each other and said, why did we do that? <laughs> and, and so there were, a few, there were a few things like that, that that just came out and it was like, we've imposed, we, we, we've imposed our points of view uh, through the political system on people. And that is absolutely a violation of our own church rules and standards. We, we violated our own rules of separation of church and state. And um, so anyway, it just it, there was a series of things like that. But for me, it started with my research in Blacks and the Priesthood. What about you? For me, it was, it's so gradual, right? But I would say the, the learning curve, or at least where I became the most committed to searching for truth, came when I finally decided to look at the question of polygamy. Mm -hmm. And um, I spent a period of time... Well, most of my life, I, I, I was implementing the shelf strategy. <laughs> I was never comfortable with that. And yet, at the same time, little did I know how deeply and profoundly polygamy has impacted every level of church corruption and um, theological or doctrinal corruption around issues of race and gender mm -hmm. um, and sexuality. And I mean, patriarchy. I think in patriarchy, right, yeah. um, the racial or the gender issue. And so it, it really started when I decided that I was going to start looking that question squarely in the face, because I think this may not, um, this may not be very different than, than some of what you have experienced out there in, my, in the audience, which is polygamy began with the prophet Joseph Smith. And if, if you know, from, you know, before we can remember, we stand up and say, I know the church is true and that the Book of Mormon is true and Joseph Smith is a prophet. If I am going to have the courage to 
face the possibility that something was a grievous error and that that same something came from the same fountainhead of the restoration itself. That is a really anxiety-inducing prospect. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me that I had to get to the point where I was more interested in truth than I was in institutional loyalty. Mm -hmm. And then I had to manage the complexity of possibly seeing if I could um, navigate both well, but do whatever felt like it was the most honorable and integrity-based thing to do with, with what I was coming to see as, as truth. And I mean, I remember putting off thinking, you know, I really ought to look into that, but feeling like I don't know if I have the courage to, to, it's almost like I knew. Mm -hmm. Right. It's almost like I knew that it was not going to be pretty and Mm -hmm. it was going to um, it was going to to ruin um, or or, or certainly at least um, very much. uh, How do I say this? I knew that it was going to put a big puncture in um, the balloon of my myth Mm -hmm. (laughs) to use a very weird um, metaphor. And as we've talked to people about this, members of our family, yeah. members of our, our own ward, mm-hmm. oftentimes we hear from people, oh, yeah, that, that does sound really disturbing. That's why I choose not to look at oh, it. Oh, it's, it's an absolute intention. Yeah, this, I, I, I choose not to look at it because I just don't want to know. And, and I, mm-hmm. I guess, you know I, what, if they're happy, fine, leave them alone. But, but for those of us who either choose to look at it or it's been it smacked us in the face against we've our had will. to look at it right we've had to look at it mm-hmm. um you can't go back <laughs> you can't right. unlearn what you've learned you can't unknow what you've known you can't unmeet the people who have been injured and hurt and so uh yeah i, I think most of us are coming to a point where these things have to be looked at they can't be ignored forever well and i think we have to take into consideration that it is in some ways like <laughs> it is a slippery slope right like when you start down the path of oh, that's been kept from me, or there has been deception, or there has been at very least a withholding or a whitewashing or whatever you want to call it, then you have to really navigate what it feels like to be on some level um, deceived. Yeah. And then you have to really look at institutional structure. You have to look at, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, what do we call it? The how prophets make mistakes. We always talk about it. What's the word? The infallibility. Of that prophets. word. Yeah. <laughs> Blocking it out today. And then you really have to start looking at not only the history, but the present time. And you have to really start reframing what is this institution and how can I be in a relationship with it in a way that is authentic to me? Yeah. Okay. So point number one, beginning to pay attention and notice that there is a problem. Let's move on to point number two realizing that the situation is urgent yes i is urgent there is there is so much that we could say about this i think um you and i have have spent a lot of time talking about the urgent nature of how gosh i don't even want to begin with this the church has for a number of years probably about a half century now at least um sort of fallen behind society in its struggles in trying to have power over and marginalizing um, wounded groups. And it's, uh, it's been something that has been a little bit of a black eye that the church has suffered from for, for a, a fairly long time. However, because of this is my own kind of take on it, uh, the, because of the advent of the internet, 
And because the rising generation is, I think, more woke in actually good ways. I know sometimes we use woke in sort of a derogatory way. But this uh, younger generation of Latter-day Saints or children who were raised Latter-day Saints by their parents who are, you know, Gen Xers and whatnot, these kids aren't having any of it. Yeah, They're not open to belonging to an institution does not, that does not represent what they feel is a, a correct way of being in connection with other human beings that, with whom they share this world. And they're leaving. And they're right. leaving rapidly. Yep. So to me, that's the first urgency yeah. is that is that the young generation of, of future leaders is leaving. Uh, we see that in the uh, baptismal records, the eight, the eight year old records of baptism are just dropping off a cliff uh, over the past 15 years or so. They've been in steady decline, uh, which is unfortunate for a church that was actually still growing during that time. Uh, they were losing their young people. And, and so wasn't it in the 80s when we were set to sort of like take over? And it was kind of like we were going to be like the next generation, the next church that was going to sort of explode. Yeah. And there was some speculation about how much potential we had as a, as a church of, you know, with great growth potential. Yeah, they're talking about like hundreds of millions of oh, yeah. members, you know. It's going to be, yeah. And it's, <clears throat> well, we're it's not completely doing... shifted. I mean, it's, it's gone the, totally the other direction. Yeah, well, the, mm -hmm. the overall growth is flattened. And very telling is the lack, lack of eight-year-old baptisms. And the reason we have the lack of eight-year-old baptisms is because the 30-year-olds have all left the church. Yeah. And they're not baptizing their kids. So that's one urgency. Uh, is, is the youth that we're losing. But the other is just the individuals that we're hurting. Even if the church were still growing at a rapid rate, the individuals that are hurt by the prejudice, the patriarchy, mm. um, you know, the lack of understanding, th those people, that, that's always going to be an urgency. We have to stop hurting people. We have to stop wounding people. Yeah. I just uh, recently had a conversation with a woman in a different stake um, asking for my thoughts on um, how to help LGBTQ concerned parents and adolescents in her stake while, while how did she say it, while gently keeping in mind and honoring the, 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 the teachings and doctrines of the church. <laughs> and I basically had to say to her, I took a pause before I responded to the question because I thought, well, here we go. And I said, well, the reason why they're concerned is because the doctrines and the stance of the church harm people. Right. I said, I see it in my practice and I, I, I experience it firsthand. And I've, I've noted, and it's also in, in, the, in the science, in the literature, is that the stance is in fact, psychologically and spiritually damaging to adolescents and their parents. And so their concern is extremely legitimate when they're wondering how to reconcile two things that are irreconcilable. Did I say that right? You Irreconcilable. That. That's great. Yes. <laughs> okay. That's Irreconcilable. A... Oh, dang it. Did I say it wrong? I think it was pretty good. Okay. Anyways, that's my own Midwest interpretation of it with a Utah <laughs> flair. Um, so anyways, the, the point there being that while we are part of an institution that is actively um, having the stance that it has in certain issues, it hurts women. It hurts uh, gender minorities. It hurts people who are in earnest trying to uh, live an integrity-based life based on their own um, selfhood, based on their own essential sense of self. Yeah. So yeah. can I use a quick example? Sure. So recently I was having a conversation with a family member who challenged me on this and said, what's wrong with teaching the youth 
who are same gender attracted, gay or lesbian, that that is not doctrinal and that it's it's okay to be broken and it's okay to be mortal and that it you know all broken things and mortal things will be fixed in the next life is that assuming that their their gayness is broken this was from her perspective i see okay, okay. Yeah. so what's wrong with t telling them that you know that they're broken and they're going to be fixed in the next life i said well here's the problem i said first of all no person likes for an institution to tell them how they identify I was like, but let's just assume that you really do talk your 17-year-old child into believing that she's broken and will be fixed in the next life. What do you think your 17-year-old child is going to long for? She's going to long for the next life. Well, that's why the suicide and rate is so that's why is the so suicide high. rate, the, the LDS yeah. teenage suicide rate is the second highest in the United States behind Native Americans. And I think if you broke it down by gay and lesbian LDS teenagers, oh, it's be astronomical. I'm sure it'd be the highest of, of all teenage groups in the United States. So um, we got to stop teaching our kids that they're broken and they'll get fixed in the next, next life. And this is just an example of why it's bad, because they either hate themselves. If they buy into the idea. If they buy into it, or they're like, oh, well, then I need to get to the next life because I can't live like this. And they and, and they're a suicide risk. Well, or an, a, break. an alternative to that, which probably is honestly that healthiest alternative is they have to estrange themselves with the institution that wounds them. Right. But the 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 aftermath of that is oftentimes uh, a rift with God who they believe is, you know, tied into this belief system, not being aware that it has probably nothing to do with God. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, it oftentimes causes a deep and profound rift in their relationship with their with their most important, you know, uh, unit of connection, their family. Their families, right. Right? And so it, it causes a, a multitude and multiple layers of wounds. And so what we're trying to articulate, you guys, is that this is an urgent situation. Yes. And we need to have the courage to be respectful, but also be very um, uh, direct in saying this isn't acceptable. This is we are speaking using our God given agency, speaking on behalf of what we feel is in keeping with the nature of God. OK, let's move on to point number three. Point number one was we need to pay attention and notice there's a problem. Point number two is realizing the situation is urgent. Point number three is feeling a sense of personal responsibility. Okay, well, I'll start with it. I'll start off on this one and then you can pick up, okay? Mm -hmm. All right, so I, for for one, um, I feel like I sort of uh, stumbled into this opportunity to, to do this podcast. I've noticed over the years as I've been in my private practice as a therapist where I have had very much a bird's eye view of uh, the pain and suffering of, of very, very good people. And by the way, I want to be very careful to say the church in many ways is such a deep and profound blessing to a lot of people. I have had the privilege of working with absolutely amazing people. And I want to just um, put a plug in for some of the kindest, best men that I've ever worked with are bishops. And they are humble and earnest, and they really, really, they just do beautiful work. And some of them have been very, very supportive of sending their um, congregants, the constituents of their wards to therapy. And they're very humble in recognizing where, you know, how to stay in their own lane. And when they don't know what they're talking about, I also of course have seen the other end of that spectrum <laughs> where there are, uh, there's a lot of unrighteous dominion going on, a lot of uh, trauma 
that is actually activated by father figures, uh, by parents um, from very, very rigid authoritarian Orthodox families, a lot of whom are bishops and stake presidents, um, abusive situations in um, patriarchal um, settings. And I've seen a, a fair share of mission president um, clients who have been very wounded by very authoritarian um, corporate America mission presidents. So anyhow, with that as sort of the backdrop of what I'm trying to develop here is I feel a personal responsibility because I have been in the trenches for a number of years seeing the good, the bad, and the ugly, and seeing how and why people suffer. And I also feel um, very grateful for the fact that I do have, I've, you know, I feel like one of my spiritual gifts that God gave me the appetite to read. I love to read. I love to study. I, um, I, I feel like there's something that I have been and am being and, and perhaps am now working towards as far as I feel like God wants me to be an instrument for sharing in, in the way that we do in 2000, you know, in the 2020s, in helping other people better understand the nature of their own suffering, first and foremost in my therapy office, but now here with you. And so I feel a personal responsibility to follow through on that. I remember there was um, a period of time where I was, I was, I was ambivalent. I've shared a little bit of it about this on, on this podcast, about the fear I felt. Um, a worst case scenario being I've had to come to terms, you guys, with the possibility that I may be excommunicated for not sustaining my leaders, if that is what is interpreted by the words that I share on this podcast as um, gentle and respectful as I'm trying to be. And I had to come to terms with the reality that I am doing what I feel called to do by God. And I also, I remember a, a profound impression that I had not too long ago while I was studying and really strongly considering studying up and becoming more competent so that I could, I could use my, my gifts and talents um, in speaking into these, these topics for you. And I was also at the same time wrestling with this understanding and my, my increasing relationship with, with a feminine divine and heavenly mother. And I remember a very strong impression that I had, which I believe came from my, my feminine divine mother who said, something like this. I don't have a voice, but you do. And I would like you to use it. Mm. And I haven't turned back since. And I will speak on behalf of the feminine divine. I will speak on behalf of the marginalized. I will speak truth to power. I will speak about corruption. I will speak about things that don't feel right, that don't look right, that hurt people, that we ignore willfully. I will speak about spiritual abuse. I will speak about whatever I need to speak about to honor my commitment that I've made to my divine parents. It's beautiful. Save me, Thank babe. You. I'm getting emotional over uh, here. <laughs> I, I can't save you. <laughs> I can't follow that Give up. Give me a second to uh, recover anyways. I can't follow that up other than, you know, I just... I also feel that it's important and I'm happy to, to join you on your podcast and uh, walk with you on, on this journey of pointing out the things that we see that are not loving, unkind, and that hurt people. 
and, and trying to give a voice to the marginalized and, and maybe going back to what we said, what you said before, which is that people feel that the only integrity-based choice is to leave the church um, because the church won't find a middle ground. I, I think we need to say that there is a middle ground. Um, and it may not come from the leaders at the top, but I think a, a, a silent minority, large minority, maybe a silent majority would agree that there is a place in the church for uh, those who see things differently than the 15 people that sit at the top brass. Right. Well, and I think I think that just to, to sort of add to the point you're making is that we don't know what what we don't know what's going on as far as how many people are in struggle because we have been conditioned and we have been primed in our church to be silent and to feel like go having the experience that we're having equals um lack of faith or equals insubordination or equals something that is not what it actually is in this book uh about insubordination the art of insubordination it actually talks about the needle only turns in an institution when about 25% within the institution is brave enough to have a voice and speak up against whatever's going on. And so that's a pretty large order, but it has to start with someone. And so for those of you out there listening, I encourage you to dig deep within you and talk to your friends, talk to your family. Talk to people that you feel might be in the same kind of struggle that you're in. That's why I actually, although I, you know, it's not about self-gratification, I do enjoy reading the positive reviews. It actually has more to do with please write those reviews and subscribe and share because this is the only way that a movement actually happens. It happens at the bottom. It's a bottom up kind of thing. It's not going to happen at the top. And this is true not just of our institutional problems, it's true of every institution that needs reform. And most institutions um, struggle with, with they institutions struggle with um, issues of corruption at the top. That is not an unusual thing to happen in any large institution. Am I wrong on that? No, you're right. No, I think I'm pretty right on that. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's move on to number four. I'm going to probably jump over this one rather quickly because I feel like we spend a lot of time on three and they are sort of like first cousins. Uh, number four is that you believe that you have the skills to be helpful. Now, whether or not I have the skills to be helpful, I don't know, but I'm tenacious and I just keep at it. Do you have anything you want to add to that? Well, I think just, just reaching out and being a friend, you know, I, I think you have to be willing to let people talk to you, to be there for them, to be a support. You know, the ministering program of the LDS church is one of the greatest things that's ever come out of this church. The idea that, that we get into each other's homes and we just become, you know, good listeners, uh, a good listener, is someone who is willing to love and support and not judge. Yeah. Um, and I think if we're ministering to people and we get into home and somebody says, yeah, hey, listen, I've got this struggle. My, my, my child is LGBTQ. You don't say, hey, run to the bishop and let's get this fixed. You, you listen, you love and you say it's OK. And, and I think everybody has that ability to, to do that, even if you don't run a podcast. Okay? Right. You don't you don't have a social media channel. Fine. You can still be a loving friend on a one on one basis, a non judging, loving, opening, open, receiving, accepting friend uh, in the church. That's how that's how each of us can can do something. I think that's a really beautiful way to sort of um, help us all see that we can all be helpful by also letting people feel like they can be safe and having safe. their authentic, yep. real experience. 
And I think uh, for those of us who are really um, uh, interested in the progress of the church, what that does uh, bring up in me is the, the need to also be supportive of those who are not ready to <laughs> jump on this progressive bandwagon. In other words, people need to be where they need to be and we need to have the compassion to, um, to not try to force their arm because you know, you and I know, Nathan, we would not have been receptive to this kind of thing a few years ago, but I also find a lot of hopefulness in the fact that if people like us can change, <laughs> then my goodness, there is hope for really anybody. Just, <laughs> just about. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, let's round this off with point number five. Well, let me start at the beginning just to review. Uh, number one, we pay attention and we notice the problem. Number two, we realize the situation is urgent. Number three, we feel a sense of personal responsibility. Number four, we believe that we have the skills to be helpful. And finally, the outcome is we reach a conscious a conscious decision to help. So we dig deep within us and we become strong enough to actually do something, to say something, to post something, to raise our hands in gospel doctrine and gently say, maybe we could think about this a different way. Mm -hmm. So we need to have the courage to make the decision that I am going to stand up and do differently. Because the thing of it is, you guys, is for those of us who care deeply about this, we are colluding in the problem if we are staying silent and moving through as if we are part of the orthodox majority. And there are probably a lot of people that are in deep suffering. I know that to be a fact because I'm getting letters almost, well, definitely weekly, if not a few times a week, of people that are in deep struggle and they're probably in your ward. <laughs> if it's not just you, it's, it's probably a few others just like you. And the more we feel that there's safety, um, the more we can speak up and the more we speak up, the more others feel that they can speak up too and that we can find a place where we can express ourselves and be seen. And the more we're able to do that, the more we're able to perhaps, um, you know, create something that feels more like uh, less like a silent mi minority and more like um, a vocal minority that may even actually be tipping itself over to a vocal mi majority. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on that as we close, Nathan? No, I, I think um, I think what you're saying is right. And, 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 you know, I guess for me, it's a little disappointing because I know, you know, for instance, in the Quorum of the Twelve, that several of the members of the Quorum of the Twelve have close family members that are LGBTQ. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that there's sort of a lip service to, hey, we want to be open and there's space in the church. But in, the re in reality, they're not standing up and, and, and doing what they could. And no. I think of the, um, the example of, of Elder Gong, who when he was called to the Quorum of the Twelve, it was known that he had a son that was gay. And there was a question that was asked him in, in his uh, press conference and says, hey, you have a son that's gay. And that's against the LDS Church's views. And he said something which is really good. He said, we are going to make sure there is space for everyone in this church. Beautiful and, and true. It, it or is, at least, not, well, it, maybe not well, true, it, was, but it should be true. It, right? it should be true. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And it was true to a certain point. So then this, you know, this other thing comes out where uh, he and his wife take his son and, and his, his son's partner out to dinner. And that was good. <laughs> because they were in public and they were going to be seen. Being seen with gay people. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he did. <laughs> and they even took pictures. But then he ruined it because he posted, he, he told his son, don't post those pictures online. I don't want people to get the wrong idea. And his son did. 
And I went to the I went to the Instagram post because when I heard about it, I was you didn't believe it. You were like, no. Well, no, I did believe it. I was just really yeah. sad. Oh, yeah, and, that's and even his, worse. <laughs> and his son posted, and he said, "I had this wonderful dinner with my parents. They were very supportive. They were very kind to my partner." And then they asked me not to post this online because basically they didn't want the church members to think that he was supportive of the LGBT community and his son. And he's like, and that's so hurting. And so mm -hmm. on the one hand, Elder Gong did some things that were really good. And then on the other hand, he followed it up with something that was really hurtful. And I'm going to give mm -hmm. him, I'm going to give him grace that he's learning how to navigate this the same way we all learn how to navigate those, you know, these difficult issues. And hopefully he learned from that. But I see in the church that even the leadership doesn't know how to handle this really. Or especially. It's, or especially. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so it's yeah. up to us to get it right. We have to be the loving people that can reach out and say, yeah, um, you know, there's a safe place here. Well, and I think what we, what, what, what's, what's backwards in the situation that you just described is that I, I, I dare say um, that he was likely doing this for loyalty to the institution, right? Yeah. And yet at the same time, ironically, that that kind of stance is hurting the institution in the long run the institution is dying because we are not actually in my opinion representing uh the nature of god which is to be open and loving right and so um in the spirit of saving something he's actually not saving it in, our, in, in, in what may look like our um speaking against the institution we're actually doing it because we love the institution and we don't want it to die on the vine like it is um because it has lost its way yep so I agree. all right you guys good to be with you as per usual um please if you will share this podcast how many times do i need to say this i'll say it every time so that's how many times i need to say it i really appreciate those of you who are those of you who are subscribing um if you're on any um social media platforms and you would like to please share these on those that would be amazing and um, please if you have the heart to pause and write a positive review and rate this podcast and subscribe if you haven't already done so so that you know every time one drops i try to drop one a week and on good weeks i even drop two all right i love you guys i'll see you next time bye good night